Acts chapter 2 today, please. In your Bibles, if you have them, find the passage there, and we're going to stand momentarily and read it together. Acts chapter 2 in your Bible. We'll, I'm going to leave the book of Romans where I've been preaching for uh, nearly a year now and pick up a new subject here for a few weeks. Then we'll go back to Romans and start in chapter 7 of that wonderful Bible uh, book. Acts chapter number 2. Please, will you stand with me as we read God's Word together today? I begin the reading in Acts 2 and verse 38. And then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward or evil generation. Then they that gladly received his word, that's salvation, were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them church membership, 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, and in prayers. If you'll go down to verse 46, and they continue, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, that's hospitality, they did eat their meat with gladness, spirit of joy permeated them, and singleness of heart, a unity, a unified purpose. Praising God, verse 47, and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, every day, such as should be saved. And you may be seated. <clears throat> I have, uh, I'm using today a very, very special Bible. It's an old brown Bible that I acquired about 47 years ago, and I was living in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I was working there for a church as the minister of music and the business manager in the church. And I met a missionary who came there, and uh, later our church supported that missionary. His name was Harold. And uh, that missionary began to talk to me, and we began to have Bible studies together and share some things And in the course of our conversations, he said to me, Bill, I don't think you understand the local church. Well, I'd gone to two Bible colleges, and I'd been reared in the home of a pastor, and I took it as kind of a slight at first. You don't know what you're talking about, I think was what he was saying to me. You're kind of messed up on your understanding of the New Testament church. And so we began to have some Bible studies. He invited himself over to my little apartment in Beach Grove, Indiana. And he told Norma he liked to drink milk. So Norma would buy him a gallon of milk, and we would sit and have Bible studies. And we started in the book of Acts. And in due course of time, he told me the Bible that I had wasn't worth very much. I needed a Thompson chain Bible. And 
So I went downtown to Indianapolis because that's where the Thompson Chain Bible is made. And I went to the B.B. Kirkland Bible Company and bought me a nice Thompson Chain Bible for about $18, $19 then. And when I came to Florence, this was the Bible I used for seven or eight years. And it's pretty well worn now. Um, it's um, the Bible I preached my first sermon out of. So I have a lot of sentimental value in this, this old Bible. I hauled it out because I wanted to make a point. I wanted to get your attention. Because as we studied, that missionary myself, God spoke to my heart. In fact, my call to the ministry came during those days. I was called to preach and subsequently to come to Florence out of that study of the local church. So you understand why this is pretty significant and profound to me. Now, the question this morning is, what was it that I learned in that Bible study after a lifetime as a pastor's son and a couple of Bible colleges and considering myself to be a fairly serious Christian at that point, what was it that I learned that so changed my life? Question. What could I learn that would make that much of an impact upon my life? Well, I learned God's plan and design for His church in a way that nobody had ever taught me before. And so we got to Acts chapter 2, and uh, the missionary would carry for our Bible study a little ruler with him, and he would take a red pen and he even underline my new Bible. He was a pretty presumptuous guy, really. But you'll see red underlining here because he was making a point and trying to get me to get that point. And it took me a while to have a breakthrough in my mind. Today, I want you to have a breakthrough in your mind. You may think you know all about it, and maybe you do. I don't know. But uh, I think there's a lot here for us. And if we could get hold of this, it is absolutely and positively life-changing, not only for me, but it would be for many of you. I came to understand as we had those Bible studies that the local New Testament church, or I'm going to call it from now on the church of Acts chapter 2, I came to understand that the Acts 2 church is the most beautiful institution on this earth, that there's nothing like it. And yet today, it is so degraded and has changed so much in the minds of people out there in the world that the church is held in very low regard with so many people compared to the other institutions of life. But not so in the Scripture. The Acts 2 church is the most beautiful institution on this earth. That's my first point. What was so beautiful about it? Well, as you read here in the Bible, this is a community of people in the city of Jerusalem who come out from the rest of the people because of their common faith in Jesus Christ. And they call themselves church. The first time you see that used here in the book of Acts is in verse 47. And it's used then over and over and over many, many times. 
And what made that little community of people so distinct from the people around them? What is it that ought to make the Florence Baptist Temple people different from all those people out there that live in the PD area? Why are we different? What, are, what is it that makes us distinctive? Well, these people offered a vision or a dream, a vision of life to that community that was so beautiful. It was so powerful that it attracted thousands of people to them immediately. People were coming out of the woods, as we would say, to join with them because they were so unique. And then that community of believers spread all over that area of the world, went into the Middle East, went up into Europe. Within 300 years, it was the predominant religious belief system throughout the entire Roman Empire. So what was it that attracted people like that? It was this vision that these people have had of a better life. Of course, they loved the Lord Jesus Christ supremely. He was their master, their Lord. They viewed him as owning them and their possessions. And you can see there in the text that when somebody in that community of believers, when someone had a need that those people reached out to them and met their need, even selling their possessions to meet the needs of other people. Now, you don't see that today. That's why the church has been so degraded, and that's why it's less than it's ever been in so many ways. But listen to me today. In those days, those people loved each other so much, they were willing to sell their possessions and give them to other people who had to meet the needs of other people. That just doesn't happen anymore, does it? And by the way, that was not communism where you're forced to do that. That was Christian love where you do that out of love for the other people. You care enough that you will even sell your possessions for them. And they love the Lord supremely. And look back, if you will, to the left in your Bible, just a few pages to the book of John, chapter 13. Now, in doing what they were doing, this is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ had commanded them to do. Because in John 13 and 34, John 13 and 34, Jesus gathered to the disciples and he said, a new commandment I give to you. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. That's the benchmark. He didn't say, I want you to love one another. He said, I want you to love each other as much as I have loved you. And how much did he, how much has he loved us? Enough to give his life for us, right? I want you to love each other in the same manner that I have loved you, Jesus said. And then in verse 35, he says, the way that people are going to know that you're my disciples is the love you have for one another. Stop, hold it, look up here a minute. People don't know if you love God. There's no way on this earth that I can look at your life and know if you love God. But I can tell if you love other people. I can tell real quickly if you love me. The sign of a disciple of the Lord was not how much you loved the Lord. It was how much you loved other people. And he said, when people see that, they are going to say, wow, I've never seen anything so beautiful Never seen anything so wonderful in all my life. These people were so genuine. 
They were not plastic like we talk about people being so much today. They were so genuine. They were so authentic. They were so real. They took off their mask when they came to church. They weren't playing this game of how I've got everything in control and everything is just perfect with me always. They took off their mask and they loved each other. They shared their lives together. They had time for each other. They gave their possessions and their money. They laughed together. They cried together. They prayed together. They sang together. They went to each other's homes, which is foreboding today. Whoever goes to anybody's home, and yet in the home is where bonds are made and fellowship is deepened and people really do learn to accept and love one another. And they went there, they served each other over and over. And here's the thing about it. They lived in such a hostile culture. Remember, when you think that we are living in a day that's hostile to Christianity, six weeks before this account in Acts chapter 2, just six weeks ago, they had crucified the Lord Jesus Christ in the city of Jerusalem. And yet, here they are trusting and loving and accepting one another like nobody ever has. And through the power of their faith, their lives were transformed. These people were literally charged with the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. You could sense it being around them. Acts chapter 2 even describes it. And when you met them, you know how they were different. They didn't wear a pen. They didn't have a fish on the back of their car or a banner that said, I go to the Baptist temple. You know how you could tell? They had the fruit of the Spirit in their life. Love, joy, peace, patience, patience. Patience. Be patient. I'm not through. Patience. Goodness. Gentleness. Faith. Meekness. Self-control. 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 And you looked at their character. And you knew that they were authentic. They didn't have to wear a badge or a lapel pin. They demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit. And listen to me, everybody. It was not a duty to go to church. They changed their plans to go to church. Church was priority on their agenda because it was the most loving, accepting, wonderful, God-honoring place that anybody could go on the planet. And they didn't come to church out of duty It wasn't just a place to go to meet some people. It was the cause of God on this earth. And as long as they held to that, wow, what a difference they were making on this planet. As I said, in 300 years, the dominant religion across the Roman Empire, from zero to taking over all of Europe and and, and the Middle East within 300 years, it's un. There's no parallel to that in all of history. And as I sat in that little apartment with that missionary and my wife 
studying this old Bible 46 years ago, 47 years ago, I began to see that a church was the most beautiful thing. Not all churches. Uh-uh. Some of them are ugly because people get self-righteous. And they become indifferent and apathetic and cold. But when they are like the book of Acts chapter 2, it got hold of me. It got hold of me so much, my pastor had been sick and in the Mayo Clinic, and we were having an all-night prayer meeting every night at the church, praying for him almost around the, uh, the, the clock that he would be healed, and God miraculously healed him, by the way, and brought him back. He's still alive today. And you know what? One night at that altar, I said, God, when the pastor comes home, I'm going to walk in his office, resign this job. I'm going to rent me a truck, move my little tad of stuff down to South Carolina because I haven't seen a church like this, this one here in Indianapolis down there, and I'm going to go down there and spend my life proving I made the right decision. And that's the story of how the church was born in my heart. That was my call, if you will. I reason like this. What could I do with my life that would make as great a difference as trying to have an Acts 2 church? Man, I've been dominated. I've been eaten up by that dream now for all these years from day one. What's so special about the church? I have three M's I'll give you real quickly here. What's so special about the church, first of all, is its message. We have the most unique message in town, a message of grace, a message of redemption, a message of hope like nobody else has. These are not very hopeful times. There's clouds hanging over our country and over the world this morning, isn't there? And you sense it. I was talking to a a businessman in our church the other day, I said, man, I just feel like I need to really preach some strong stuff to our people about vision and dreams and and goals. I look out there, and the body language tells me that people are real apathetic right now. He said, you ought to come to my office. It's worse. And and I sense that about the whole country today. The future is so uncertain, and, and, and we don't know what is going to happen, and we can't control what is going to happen. But I can tell you one thing, we can try to build a little island of hope right here in the midst of a sea of problems around us. And that's what they did in Acts chapter 2. And that's why God used them. And our message is unique. Who else today? Where are you going to go and hear about grace and redemption and that you can have a second chance in life and that God will forgive you and he'll clean up your conscience and cleanse you of your sin and give you hope in your life. Where are you going to go get that? They don't sell that at Bilow. You've got to come to the Acts chapter 2 church if you're going to find that kind of thing. The second thing is the mission, the message, grace, redemption, hope. The mission is to transform lives, to make disciples, to bring hope and bring faith and bring love into the life of people that are living in a pretty cold world out there to transform, to change human hearts. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. So you have the message of grace and redemption and hope. You have the mission is to make disciples and the ministry itself. 
There's no other institution. And I, I'll stand on this. I thought about this. This is not a hyped up uh, reactionary phrase. There's no other institution in our community that makes so much difference on so many levels as an Acts chapter 2 church. Talk about social change. Meant was the Christians that got rid of slavery. It's been the Christians who led the way for women to have equal rights. It's been the Christians down through the years who provided education. Look in the state of South Carolina today. Name our colleges. Charleston Southern, religious. Furman, religious. A Christian base and roots. Erskine, uh, Presbyterian. Uh, Southern Methodist or Wesleyan, uh, Southern Wesleyan College. And, and you go around the state over and over and over. Uh, North Greenville. Uh, Christianity has led the way in bringing education to the minds of people across the country, whether at the grade school or, or at the graduate level. Look at the medical, the missionaries we've sent across the world, the doctors and nurses who've trained themselves to help save people from disease and to save their lives. And hundreds and thousands of them through the years we have gone all over the world helping people in the name of Jesus Christ. We take seven or eight little mission trips from this church every single year. Uh, you people go to the field and help people in whatever, even an elementary way that you can. And you think of the great hospitals that have been built. In Indianapolis, the largest hospital when I was there was Methodist Hospital. In South Carolina, probably the largest hospital today is the Baptist Hospital in Columbia. Think of all the missionary work. Think of the Catholic hospitals. If it were not for the Catholic hospitals in the ghettos of America today, there would be almost no medical care. All of it having been done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, at least initially in its initial days. Today, government dominates our life. It's not the church. Government programs, though, can't change a single human heart. The government can't bring reconciliation and peace to hurting people. The government can't turn hatred and prejudice into love for other people. Business can provide much-needed jobs for us, but they cannot change the first human heart. Education can teach people knowledge. We've recognized you and we appreciate you and we honor you. And you can teach people knowledge of the universe. You can tell them about the stars and the moon and the earth and the planets. But I'll tell you one thing, education has failed to change people's hearts spiritually and put them in right relationship with the Lord. D.L. Moody was going to go hold a revival in town up north. And the preachers got together and they said, well, we need to decide how, if we're going to help this evangelist who's coming in. And he talk, got up before that group of preachers and he told them, these are my plans when I come to your town. I'm, going, I'm planning on doing this. We're going to sing great songs. Our songs will honor the Lord Jesus. 
I'm going to preach from the Bible. Then I'm going to give an invitation. And then we're going to lead people to Christ. And then I'm going to give those names to you in the churches. And you go out and follow up on those people and get those people, disciple them, develop them, mature them, use those, get those people to begin to serve the Lord. And it'll make such a profound difference in everybody's life. And a fellow stood up, sort of a liberal, and he said, Mr. Moody, if you come here and do that, you'll set the churches back 200 years. And Moody said, well, then I would have failed because my intention is to set them back 2,000 years. And my intention for the Baptist temple is not for us to be on the cutting edge of the latest cool thing. I want this to be an Acts chapter 2 church. The Acts 2 church is what Jesus' vision was for the church. I wish you would write down this definition if you don't know it by heart of what a vision is. You know what I mean when I use the word vision? Without a vision, the people perish. A vision is a picture of a preferable future. And, but it's not just any better future. It's not a dream of going to a desert isle somewhere. Vision, as I'm using the word, is a picture of a preferable future that produces passion in somebody's heart. And so I read Acts chapter 2. And did that Bible study long ago when I was a young man and God was speaking to me about the direction of my life. And I thought, what a beautiful, beautiful thing this church is here. And it produced a passion in me, a burning desire to see that somewhere else. And I would go and take that message and do my best to try to lead so that people could experience an Acts 2 church in South Carolina. Jesus' vision for a preferable future was that was expressed or implied at least in what we call the Great Commission. And uh, what a big vision. Going to all the world, that's a vision as big as the world. It's a world-sized vision. If you've got a little tiny vision and you're content with your 13 and no more, you, don't, you haven't bought into Jesus' vision. Jesus' vision for his church is as big as the world. It's also as small as one person, every creature. Take the gospel to the whole world, big, every creature, small, individual. That's the vision of Jesus. And so the lost must be sought out. And the gospel must be shared with every person possible. And then believers must be equipped and discipled. And the poor must be served. And the lonely must be accepted and loved when they come here. And everyone must feel the love of God And a sense of love for other people. After all, the Lord Jesus Christ summarized all the commandments by saying, you can carry out all the commandments if you'll just love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do that, you will keep the others. They'll take care of themselves. And so everyone who comes to our church must feel acceptance. They must feel the love of God. They must sense a love for other people when they leave here. And you know what? Jesus Christ gets credit for all of it. He gets the credit for all of it. We glorify him. 
So you say, Pastor, what is your vision? The other day in staff meeting, I was talking about this, and one of our staff pastors said, well, I want to hear your vision. And I told him, in essence, but I stated it in a numerical way. If he were to ask me that again today, as I've studied for the last few weeks, here's what I'd say. What is my vision? It is to grow an, an Acts chapter 2 church in Florence. And we should have just begun. It isn't a time to quit. It's a time to renew our efforts. And Acts chapter 2 church. That still produces a passion in me. Can you tell? I still get excited inside of that. Uh, inside about that, pardon me. And here's the thing that, you know why I brought all these kids in here today? Because I could tell you about what we're doing, but you couldn't see it. And a picture is worth a thousand words, isn't it? And to see those little kids waving at the camera and lined up and down these aisles, knowing that we couldn't even get all those people in here if we wanted to, it stretches and enlarges your vision and gets you to see what God has been doing and what and, and, and he wants to do. We should have just established a foundation, not sit here and brag about we're champions or something. So many good things here happen on so many levels, and I don't say much about it sometimes. I don't want to be a braggart. I don't like people who brag. But today I'm going to brag. Today I'm going to brag for just a few minutes because I'm bragging on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to be excited about what he's been doing here. For example, every month, 70 missionaries around the world get a check from this church. Some of them get a check for six or $700. Others of them get a check for $100. But they all get whatever we promised them when we sent them out. In addition, last year, you and I gave almost $450,000 to the cause of getting the gospel out across the world. We have built buildings, sometimes by ourselves, the whole building, sometimes helped out with a building project. We have bought I don't know how many cars through the years that missionaries are driving around somewhere in the world even as I speak. I don't know how many times we've flown somebody home from the mission field at five or $7,000 because they couldn't get treatment there and we wanted them to be able to come home and get well. This Wednesday night, if you come to church here, you will hear a man called named Buddy Thigpen. Buddy's from Savannah, Georgia. Buddy, 20-some years ago, left a successful pastorate and moved to Smolensk, Russia. And he started reaching people for Christ. And we sent a team of people over there. How many of y'all went to Smolensk 25 years ago or whatever it was? Raise your hand if you will. Okay, we have a few of you left, not too many. But Buddy will be here and tell us about his work. The Russian government now has opened its arms and they're helping, they are asking for him to help them with their problems that they have there in that culture. And he has the greatest opening he's ever had in his life. He'll be speaking here, by the way, for us this Wednesday night. And while we sit here today, we look at these television cameras, and I rarely refer to it, but the gospel is going out across much of uh, 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 
probably a third of South Carolina, deep into southeastern North Carolina. It's going out over the World Wide Web, the Internet. It's on our website where every week hundreds of people click on our website from everywhere and watch these services once they have been put up on on the site. And we bring hope to them. We offer guidance to them from the Scriptures. We don't have a show. We don't have a performance. People come to know Christ through those programs. And we've been doing it now, I think, for right at 30 years. We've been on television every week. I stood at the football game Friday night. We got beat Friday night. Soundly. Badly. I stood in the end zone with Jimmy Miles. And Jimmy and I watched. And it was a great crowd. I don't know, probably 1,000, 1,200 people at that ball game. I have no idea. Full. People everywhere. And we watched our boys out there on that beautiful field playing football. And we watched the game. And we talked, and Jimmy said to me, Pastor, he pointed his finger to the field. I can tell you one thing about our football program. We may not be winning tonight, but I can tell you something about us. We have the most Christ-honoring program I have ever seen anywhere, and I'm proud of them, win, lose, or draw. And then the game is over. And our coach back there, Neil Minton, gathered the players around him and from the other team as well as ours. And in that school down in Manning, a young person, one of the students had been killed that week or died. I'm not sure what, but they lost one of their students to death. And Neil gathered all those students around and he prayed with them and prayed for that family, and prayed for that school, and prayed for that student body, and exalted the Lord Jesus Christ. And the opposing team came up to him and thanked him over and over that he was praying for their, for their student body and for what had happened there in their school. And you know what I said in my mind? I would rather have a football coach who would pray with those young people and minister to them in a situation like that than I would to win the state championship. After all, we've already done that. Big deal. Thank you, coach. You see, that's the mission and the ministry of the church being carried out on the football field. By the way, sometimes we get ridiculed by some of the other schools for that. It's okay. Here come those little Christian boys. Yeah, well, it's not us with the problem. It's not us with the problem. You look around here, you see compassion. The daily ministry, the hospital calls, the counseling, the work with people. We're getting ready soon. Christmas will be here. It'll be time to gather up that food, and I'll be bothering you to death about it every service. Last year, you folks gave right at 14 tons 
tons, I said. That's 2,000 pounds in a ton. Need to tell some of y'all that. You didn't do well in math. 2,000 pounds in a ton, and there were 14 tons. And we fed 576 families throughout the winter off of that. Does that make you feel like it's good to be a part of an Acts 2 church? We have our children, our youth, that you saw so many ministries there. Our FBT Sports, hundreds of children, Christ-centered program there starting up next Saturday. Our Sunday school, and, and people think, you can't promote Sunday school. Man, I'm in love with Sunday school. We're going to go through the whole Bible in three and a half years. You're going to know more about the Bible than some people would who attended Bible college. You're going to learn it from an apologetic standpoint, so you'll be, argue, you'll be able to argue and defend the faith. You will have your whole family together studying the same passage and taking a family devotional and that week reinforcing those truths. Every week we light the lighthouse. I lit it today because Robbie Knight, one of our deacons, led a man to the Lord Jesus Christ to saving faith Monday night. And Bill York had a man come over and work on his house, and while he's up on the roof, Bill begins to witness to him. The man comes down. He leads him to Christ. And I could give you story after story of things like that, people who are walking the talk, who are keeping up, keeping the lighthouse burning. You don't know the great stories. There's no way, there's no time to communicate them. Let me tell you about Reggie. Reggie's not here today. Reggie was a cocaine addict. Reggie was so hooked on cocaine, he was walking across Irby Street up here, and he passed out. He was so sleepy, he just laid down on the median in the middle of the street and went to sleep. After all, if you get sleepy, lay down. You're high enough, huh? And the cops came and arrested him and took him to Effingham. And our jail team that goes down there every Monday afternoon and every Thursday afternoon went down there and began to do Bible studies with Reggie. And Reggie came to know Christ. And Reggie got out of jail, and he said, I I, I need help. And so Reggie went to Rockford, Illinois, where he is today. And a week or two ago, Jane said, there's some guy who wants to call you. And I'd forgotten about who it was even. And I was studying. I didn't want to be bothered. And he was persistent. I said, put him on there. And I got on the phone. We started talking. And Reggie told me about his plans. He wants God to use him. He's studying the Bible. He's looking forward to getting out. He didn't know yet what God's going to do with him. But you know what? I just, again, stopped and thanked God for an Acts chapter 2 church. People who will go to the jail. People who will take their money and send somebody to a rehab they can't afford to go for themselves. People who that care genuinely about people. Folks, you can't forget that. You can't let that get away. Pastor, what is your vision? What I learned during that time 46 years ago in Indianapolis in this old brown Bible, that the most beautiful thing on the earth 
is an Acts chapter 2 church. Listen to me, folks. It's not a time for apathy. I know you get a body blow just watching the news every day. But I want to tell you, indifference and unconcern, over-busyness that dominates us sometimes is like a termite. It eats away at our spiritual life, doesn't it? I want you to dream bigger. If you will let God use you, every one of you, there's no telling what we can do from this little old town. But we need everybody to buy in. People, I hear people say, you can make a difference. I don't agree with that. It's not that you can make a difference. It is that you do make a difference. You make a difference every day. It's not whether you can or not. You do make a difference. And when you put on the name of Jesus Christ, you're carrying his name and his testimony with you. And if you will live a spirit-filled, Christ-honoring, Christ-dominated life, my, he can, what he can do with you. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed.